Hey, good morning. My name is Matt Davis. I am the, one of the student pastors here at Bayou City Cypress Campus. Um, I am kind of preaching. This is the last week of our series on kings and prophets. We've been in this series all summer. It's been an overview of the um, Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. And it's been, a, a, again, a general overview of the Is- Israelite monarch um, and the corresponding prophets, prophets who lived um, during that period. And so, like I said, this is the last week that we will be in this series, and next week we will be launching into a new series, a year-long series in the book of Acts, and that will be really exciting. But um, you should not come next Sunday morning, because if you do, no one will be here. We are celebrating our 10-year anniversary at 4 o'clock at Living Word Fellowship. It's a church... Um, a big church, kind of equidistant from our Spring Branch, Tomball, and Cypress campuses, where everyone um, who's a part of Bayou City will gather to commemorate what the Lord has done and is doing in and through us as a church. So we hope you come. It's going to be a great time, and um, there's going to be food trucks afterwards, so it's going to be good. But uh, as we begin, um, again, I just want to say a quick word of prayer. Um, so if you would, please pray with me. Father God, we, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are a redeeming God, that you are a God who is faithful and who is true, even when we are not. Lord, we ask that your word would speak to us and that you would open our eyes to the wonders of Scripture. Lord, Psalm 17 says, you sent forth your word and healed them, Lord, and that's what we ask for. We ask for healing. We ask for a full redemption. We ask for hope and life. Lord, we ask for more of you. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind today. And God, um, would your Holy Spirit fill this room? Would you be glorified? In your name we pray, amen. So like I said, we are wrapping up a series on kings and prophets. And so uh, before we begin um, looking at the scripture that we're going to be reading today, we need to kind of set up um, the context, because again, this is the culmination of this period in Israel and Judah's history. So about the year 1050 BC, the people of Israel came before God and the prophet Samuel and demanded a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the nations around them. And so they picked this guy named Saul because he was tall, he was dark, and he was handsome, a real male model kind of guy. Surprisingly, though, he was a terrible king. He um, was incredibly insecure, and his insecurities drove him insane. And so God ultimately rejected him, and in his place, picked a backwater um, shepherd boy named David to be the next king. And David was a man after God's own heart. And David was a great king. He wrote most of the Psalms, and his rule um, and his reign lasted a long time and was successful until he died as an old man. After he died, his son Solomon became king. And Solomon was blessed by God with wisdom. And Solomon ushered in a time of of prosperity and wealth um, and peace into Israel. It was the golden age of Israel. And it was during that time that he led the building of the temple, a place to worship God. But Solomon 
loved the ladies. He had over a thousand wives. And because of that, his heart was led astray. And that opened the door for kingdom-sanctioned idol worship in Israel. And so when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, who was a hot-headed fool, became king. And within three days of his coronation, the nation of Israel splits in two. It becomes the northern kingdom, which continues on with the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, these two kingdoms continued on, um, oftentimes at peace or warring with each other. They coexisted for about the next 200 years. And during this time, king after king after king rose up who were increasingly evil and wicked. And they would lead the people astray by worshiping other gods and by setting up shrines to false idols. And so God would raise up corresponding prophets such as Hosea, and Huldah, and Elijah, and Elisha, and Isaiah, to call out these kings and to call out the people of Israel and the people of Judah for their injustice and their idolatry, and to call them to turn back and give their hearts to the Lord. But the people wouldn't listen. And so in 721 BC, God allowed Israel, the northern kingdom, to be conquered by the Assyrian Empire and the people were taken captive. For the next 200 years, the southern kingdom continued on, progressively getting worse and worse, until an eight-year-old boy named Josiah became king. And interestingly and remarkably, Josiah, a boy who had, came from a terrible family, had no role models, he decided to follow the Lord. He decided to live in obedience. And so he implemented sweeping reforms throughout Judah. He tore down the shrines. He pushed out the false idols and the, the false worship. And he created a new period in Israel. He reinstituted the practice of Passover, the celebration of Passover. Jeremiah's, uh, Jeremiah Meadows' sermon last week was on Josiah. And if you weren't here, I really encourage you to listen to it. It was fantastic. Um, but he was a king whose life was marked by a radical faithfulness and obedience to God. And so under him, the reform of Judah was accomplished. The next king inherited a kingdom where flagrant crime had ceased, where immoral worship had stopped and where all the false idols had been destroyed. Things looked and seemed good. They seemed good. But if you would, turn with me now to 2 Kings 25. Here the story picks up in roughly 587 B.C., Scholars think that's probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years after the death of King Josiah. And in those time, in that time that has passed, there have been four different kings who have come to power and ruled. Two of them only lasted for three months before they died. And the current king at this point, King Zedekiah, was a puppet set up by the Babylonian Empire. And so, this is where we begin. 
We're actually going to begin in verse 20 of chapter 24. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. And the city was besieged on all sides until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city wall, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of Arabah. So imagine it. You have King Zedekiah, king of Jerusalem, and he's this puppet king, and yet he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of the biggest, strongest um, nation that has ever existed to that point, gathers his army, the full force of his army, and marches on Jerusalem. And they lay siege to it. They surround the city. And the people of, of Judah are in the city, and they're protected by the walls. But if you noticed, the siege lasted anywhere from 16, I mean 18 months to two years. There was no food or water going in or out of the city. And so after a while, the people were starving. So in an act of desperation, the king, King Zedekiah, and his army, they dig a hole in the wall in the middle of the night, and they try and make a break for it. And they run, and yet they're caught by the Babylonians. So here, we're going to pick back up in verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and there they passed sentence on him, and they, and they executed the sons of Zedekiah before him, and they put out his eyes and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzardan, the captain of the bodyguard and servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burnt the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burnt down, and all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile." But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the next several verses of this chapter describe how the Chaldeans come in and they plunder the temple. How they strip the temple of all of its gold, of all of its silver and all of its bronze, of all, anything costly. How they steal all of the vessels that were made of gold used for worship of God and they take it off with them to Babylon. And then it describes how the chief priests and the kings, not the kings, and the Levites are taken out and executed. 
And so the last verse that we're going to read out of this passage is verse 21, and it simply says, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Do you understand what we just read? The people of God are no more. The promised land has been stripped from them. Utter devastation. Jerusalem, the city of God, was completely destroyed. The temple, the dwelling place of God, was plundered and burnt, and the people were killed or taken off into captivity. Everything that gave Judah its identity, their land, their worship, even the very people, was gone. All that was left was a pile of rubble, smoking and burnt, and a few poor, poor remnant. How did that happen? How did it get to this? Yes, Judah had broken the covenant they had made with God. Yes, they had been bad and done some awful things, especially under the reign of Manasseh. But things had changed under Josiah. They had gotten it together. They had, they had gotten rid of the riffraff. They had cleaned house. They had pu- pushed out all the um, false gods. and the, They had torn down the, idol, the shrines to idols. They had reinstituted corporate worship. They had cleaned up and rebuilt the temple, which was costly and time-consuming. They found the book of Deuteronomy, and they had read it. It had become a bestseller. You would think they had done everything that God was asking of them. In so many ways, it looks like they had done exactly what God was talking about when he spoke to King Solomon generations earlier in 1 Chronicles 7.14 when he said, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Yes, everything had changed, at least in appearance. But perhaps in truth, nothing changed that really mattered. To get a better understanding of what was going on in this time between Josiah and the fall and destruction of Jerusalem, we need to look to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a priest. He was also a prophet. And he lived through Josiah's reforms. He lived through the siege and fall of Jerusalem. And he was, himself was taken as a captive into the Babylonian exile. And so the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations are a collection of his life stories, of his prayers, of his sermons, and even his poetry. And there we can find some insight into what was actually going on. So if you would, please turn with me to Jeremiah 7. We are going to read verses 1 through 15. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from God said, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you men of Judah who enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds 
and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, lie, make offerings to Baal and to other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house the house that is called by name in which you trust, and to the place I gave you, to you and your fathers, as I did at Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, and I will cast all your kinsmen as I cast out all the offspring of Ephraim. Imagine that. Imagine the scene that the people of Judah are gathering at the temple in Jerusalem, much like we are gathering here this morning to worship God. And there's Jeremiah at the front doors shouting, lies, lies, lies. You are believing, you are speaking, and you are acting out lies. Talk about a scene. Talk about an annoyance and the disruption that it caused. It would be shocking. The people were just trying to worship God. Why was Jeremiah so mad? Why was he causing such, such a disruption? They're not at a pagan shrine. They're not at a, at a temple to a false god. They weren't offering child sacrifices as the generations before them had done. No. They weren't. So what was happening here? God knew and had revealed to Jeremiah that while the people of Judah played the part of covenant worshipers well, that they appeared to live a life of faith by being in the right place and saying the right things, they themselves were not right. It was all a pretense. It was an act. It was, as the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the people come near me with their mouths, And they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Let's look back for a second to Jeremiah 7, paying careful attention to verses 4 and verse 8. Verse 4 says, do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And verse 8 says, behold, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. 
What was the deception here? What was the lie? The temple was, in fact, the place where God said his spirit would dwell. It was the place where they were to come and worship. It was the place where they were to fill their covenant because God had given them detail on exactly how they were to come before him and how they were to offer sacrifices. That's what they were doing. Where then was the deception? Look down at verse 14. God refers to the temple as the house that is called by his name. But then he says of it, in which you trust. The people of Judah were to trust God. They were to love God with all of their hearts, all of their souls, all of their strength and all of their mind. And yet they had put their trust, their hope, their security in the temple itself, not God. And it was therefore their religion that they had put their trust in and their own self-righteousness, which they used as a mask to hide their sin and to put up a front. They hadn't actually changed during Josiah's reform. They had simply learned how to better mask and hide their sin. And if we're not careful, their story can become our story. Jeremiah's sermon is important to us, just as important as it was to them. Because we can come here to Bayou City every Sunday morning, dress nice with our Bibles in tow. We can lift our hands and worship and sing. But that doesn't put us right with God. Unless our hearts are fully given over to the Lord, it's all a front. It's a performance. The right place and the right words do not make a life of faith. They only provide the opportunity for the life of faith. And if we don't take that opportunity, the right words and the right place can simply become a way to disguise a rotten self. One of the commentaries I was looking at this week put it this way. The outside is a lot easier to reform than the inside. Going to the right church and saying the right words is a lot easier than working out a life of faith and obedience towards God and justice and love among the people you live and work with. Showing up at church and saying a hearty amen is a lot easier than engaging in a life of daily prayer and scripture meditation that develops into a life with concern for, the, for poverty and injustice, hunger and war. But aren't there times, though, when we just have to fake it till you make it? Aren't there times where we don't feel it, where our hearts or our emotions aren't there, where we feel distant from God, and so we just have to do what we know what to do? There have been times in my life where I've had to fake it till I made it in a whole different, um, in so many different ways. There was one time when I was, I was 20. It was the summer I turned 21, so uh, the summer after my uh, junior year of college. I went down and spent three and a half months working in an orphanage in Honduras. And this was a big orphanage. It had about 450 kids, but only eight permanent staff and the rest were volunteers. And that summer, there were about 
nine to 10 of us. So not a lot of people running this place. And when all the volunteers got there, the staff assigned us to what our jobs would be that summer. Some people worked in the kitchen, some people worked in the carpentry shop, some worked in the clinic, and they were like, oh, Matt, Mateo, like, you're from Texas, so you're going to run the farm. <laughs> I'm from Copperfield, man. Like, I, like, what? Like, I'm in charge of the farm? What does that mean? They're like, oh, you can work with some of the guys from the village, they'll come and help. And I was like, oh, Okay. Talk about faking it till you make it. So the first couple days weren't too bad. It was a lot of kind of feeding the, the pigs, feeding the chickens, feeding the goats. It was mending some fences. And yeah, it was a little awkward at first, but I was like, I got this. I, I'm, I'm good. And then came the day they were like, okay, now's time to birth the pigs. And I was like, oh, oh you mean like, all right, you got this, Miss Piggy. Come on, breathe with me. No, 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 that's not what they meant. By helping birth the pigs, they meant lotion up and go for it. <laughs> oh, here's the piggy, all right? It was gross. Let me just tell you, I didn't smell right for a year. Like, all right? Um, and so that day came. It was an adventure. I was like, what did I sign up for? Is this like, what? And then came the day where they were like, all right, so you know all those little piglets? Now it's time to castrate them. What? Okay. And then came time to, to, like, to slaughter the chickens. First of all, I had to go around and catch a couple hundred chickens running around a pen. I'm a tall guy, so bending down that low, the first couple were easy, but by the end, the last 10, they know what's coming, and they're not easily caught, and so I'm running around chasing these chickens, and then comes time to slaughter them, which they were like, well, just like wring its neck. My first time, it was like, like that chicken thought it was on the worst like merry-go-round ever. <laughs> but I learned to farm. I learned it. Fake it till you make it. I actually experienced and learned something by doing it. It would have been a whole nother story had I simply gone out and bought a pair of boots, wranglers, a pearl snap shirt, and a cowboy hat. There are times in our life of faith where we are called to learn by doing. The church, its history, its traditions, its liturgies are not the problem. They are actually a means for us to come before God and learn to love Him with our whole heart. But they themselves are not the end. Rather, they point to us and to help equip us to give our hearts fully to God. But isn't that itself sometimes the problem? Sometimes we want to give our hearts fully to God but we're not sure we actually have a whole heart. The reality of sin is that life is hard and that the accumulation of all the things that have been done to us or that we have done can start to chip away at our heart or shatter it altogether. Sometimes feeling like we have a whole heart to give to God seems just like a pipe dream. And sometimes, despite our best intentions, 
our lives are so messed up, we are so broken and bent that our Mondays through Saturdays like end up looking like a train wreck. And sometimes Sunday mornings, showing up can feel like a walk of shame. And so what do we do when we don't have a whole heart? When the pretending, when the mask is the best we've got? What do we do? In this moment, when life seems the worst for the people of Judah, when the bottom of their world had fallen out, when they are faced and confronted with their complete and utter failure, the abandonment of the covenant, when they are faced with death and destruction, when they feel completely abandoned by God, God does something remarkable. In Jeremiah 31, he speaks to the people. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke when I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So in the moment where they feel most written off by God, most abandoned and forgotten, he re-enters their stories, and he pledges himself to them. Despite the fact that Judah and Israel had betrayed the covenant with God, God remained faithful. Part of the purpose of the Mosaic law was to prove to them that they did not have what it took to set them right with God. They could will it. They could want it. They could try, but they would fail over and over and over again. The law showed them. The law shows us how to live in a right relationship with God and with others. But we simply can't do it. We can try, but we need something else. We need something more. And precisely at the moment in Judah's history, when things were at their worst, when the pain and the reality of their failure could not be denied or excused, God takes the lead once again. Ezekiel 36 reaffirms this new covenant. There, God says, I will take you out from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to obey my rules, and you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This new covenant that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah point to is the covenant that was made in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It was the covenant that was sealed in his blood. We are not left in exile. We are not left estranged from ourselves and from others, and most importantly, from God. Jesus entered into our story. He entered into our alienation. He has entered into our own exile. And he has worked to set things right with God. And this is a covenant that's not achieved, it's not fulfilled by us doing, but by faith in him, by trusting Jesus to be who he says he is. And when we do, we will find redemption and we will be made whole. Now, one of the things that's difficult about this is we live after Christ's death and resurrection, but we live before his return. And so we live in this reality of the already but not yet kingdom. And so we will still fail in this life. We still will struggle But trusting in God does not remove us from the hardships and difficulties of being. But rather, it sets those hardships, it sets our failures up in comparison to the all-surpassing greatness and love of our God. And it contextualizes them. And so this is what it means, is that we can take our worst days to Christ and lay them down as an offering to him. So let's cut through the pretending. Let's cut through the front and let's be honest and let's lay our lives down and pick up the pieces of our hearts and simply offering them to God because that is the beautiful sacrifice. That is the beautiful offering. That is the worship that he desires from us. So I want to ask you all to have the courage today to stop playing the game, but to simply come and allow yourself to be embraced by God. I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe it's a great week. Maybe it's a devastatingly hard week but you are loved and our God is faithful. Trust him. Trust him with whatever you've got going on. Let's pray. Father God, you are a faithful God. You are our covenant God and you have redeemed us. So Lord, help us enter into your story. And help us live obediently before you.
God, give us the courage to, to not hide behind our performance and to cherish our secret sins. But God, help us to lay all of ourselves before you and to trust you because you are good. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.